Brian Weiss, thanks for coming back again, man. I didn't scare you away the first time. Not at all. Uh, this time I'm trying to grow my beard, my quarantine right. beard. For those of you that have trouble growing beards, I feel your pain. Yeah, I, um, I wish mine would slow down because I'm starting to look like a, like a mountain man here. And I'm, I, I don't know, I'm being, I'm being lazy. Because like this, I hate this, how it's like coming onto my lip, the mustache part. And I, and I hate that, like, I've got a weird mustache, like, you know, like, there's, there's the guys that have, like, that really sharp mustache, you know? Like, they could pull off having just a mustache. Mine just looks like a weird, creepy, pedophile mustache. So I'm like, <laughs> mm -mm, nope, not doing it. So, so yeah, I, I will never have just a mustache. Um, so, but good for you growing out the beard, man. I, I say uh, beards increase attractiveness on males, I'm told, from females, by like 67%. Yeah, it's a big, big percentage, gentlemen. Trying it out, it's, it's very itchy. Mm. <laughs> give it another, um, well, if, if you have trouble growing them out, give it another three to six months, and <laughs> the itchiness will go away. <laughs> oh, man. All right, so... For, for people that didn't watch uh, the last one, I had you join me with Rob Ray. You and, you and Rob Ray, I would say go way back. I, I mean, you guys have done some, some online stuff together. I think you've also done some in-person stuff together. You're a huge Datto fan, and that's totally cool. I like Datto, too. In fact, look, you're, you're repping the shirt, man. Oh, yeah. So, this is you know, the most comfortable yet semi-professional thing I felt like I could put on this morning. <laughs> I, uh, I went the complete opposite direction. I'm wearing my uh, adulting should be optional t-shirt. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, so yeah, adulting, uh, you know, when, when you're in a quarantine type situation, I feel like adulting absolutely should be optional. Uh, this just kind of sucks. I, I, I'm curious, like, how is this impacting you? Um, I don't want to say professionally, but I don't want to say personally either. Uh, how, how do I want to word this? So how is this impacting you and, like, your productivity, your personal productivity? Um, so, it's got ups and downs. There's moments where I've got a ton of motivation to get a lot of stuff done but there's also moments where I feel like I'm kind of on the ledge of if I get interrupted enough I might just give up for the day <laughs> just because it feels I mean there are aspects of working from home that are harder with certain interruptions right and I have a nine-year-old daughter um, who's also homeschooling then I have a my wife's working with me too right next to me and she actually just started working with me um, right before this. So she's still kind of in an onboarding mode where she's not quite settled yet. So she needs a lot of my help too. So um, I try to pick and choose when I'm going to be doing certain projects to make sure I've got complete focus. Because even though I'm working from home and a lot of my employees tell me they're more productive working from home, with less interruptions, I've still got some interruptions I'm dealing with. Good for you. Speaking of interruptions, I sometimes forget to like close all my windows 
Oh yeah. It makes me feel really dumb. So like I've got all this like Facebook Messenger blue 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 like in the background. So I had to go close all those real quick. I apologize for if it looked like I wasn't giving you my complete attention, because I yeah. wasn't. I was <laughs> busy closing <laughs> everything. So um yeah, I, I feel your pain, man. I mean I've got the, the seven and the fourteen year old. So my fourteen year old daughter, you know, she's old enough to like practically hate us. Hate, hate you know, because she's a teenager. So everything we do is stupid. Um, and then our our seven year old, um, he's he's in that like rebellious stage where I don't even know how to describe like. You know, because, okay, so for those of you that don't know, I think you know Brian, but, like, our kids are adopted. We were foster parents first. So, like, we didn't have either of them from, like, birth. We, we had her move in when she was, like, nine. We, he moved in when he was, like, four. So, I mean, he's he's a little behind. So, like, I feel like last year he went through, like, the, the, the threes where everything's no like that's that's what last year was like um so so this year he's he's almost like in that fours and five stage where where he just wants to battle over everything and he's right and you're wrong about everything but it's like little kid everything so it's you know he's arguing with me about like i can't even think of of the last thing we argued about but it's just so stupid it's like he comes over here and he's talking to me about like you know, dinosaurs, robots existing at the same time, and like, yeah, they did that. I'm like, all right, dude, whatever. Like, go, go play with your Legos. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what to do with that. Like, there's, there's no, um, there's, there's, there's just like no arguing with that because it's just so magic crazy. I don't, I don't know what to do with that. So, so I just don't. <laughs> you gotta pick your battles. Oh, absolutely. It's uh, you know, my my wife and I talk about picking our battles all the time when it comes to her daughter because, you know, at fourteen, it's like, you know, we're we're still in that like, all right, we got to teach her how to how to like, thrive and, and uh, you know succeed as an adult, but she's old enough that she she's formed her own opinion on how things should work. So, like, it's it's constantly a, a struggle with this is the right way to do this and like wanting to yell at her for doing it the wrong way. But I'm, but we, we constantly have that argument of she just needs to screw up and, and learn the hard way. If she's not going to listen, like, why are we getting so bent out of shape? If, if she's not going to, she's not going to do the homework, right. And she'll get a bad grade. And she'll learn. She'll take this. She'll take it all again next year. <laughs> So I'm not sure how that, that's how it works with no child left behind. I, 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 I know so, that's how it works with me, with the entrepreneurial, you know, spirit. I, I tend to be a little stubborn with mm-hmm. things, you know, and I got this way seems the right way to do it. And I'm set on it until I either waste enough time or make a mistake to realize, oh, what everyone's been telling me makes sense now. Why did I try to, you know, do that, do it that way? It's just that, will that that feeling that you have something right and you want to go with it, and realizing that oh maybe that's not the best way to do it. You know? hmm. That's what I really like about our community, the MSP community. Even though we're all competitors, I feel like we're just 
big community willing to help each other out and try to prevent each other from making mistakes that we've made in the past. And, you know, especially when it comes to picking certain tools. <laughs> we're, we're like frenemies. Yeah. So um, spe speaking, you know, I feel like that's a great segue, Brian. Thank you for that. Uh, you know, you, you said we're having, having a group of MSPs to talk with and, and like learn from their mistakes is awesome, you know? Yeah. Um, and I, I hear uh, you, you've had, unfortunately, a pretty big mistake. I don't know if it was a mistake, but you, you had a big uh, issue. Um, you had a data breach within yes. your MSP. So, so what, what happened, man? Were, were you just like really lax? Like everyone's password was password123 with an exclamation point? Like how, how does an MSP get a data breach? So I was, we can call me an early adopter of, of the breach situation because mine happened uh, March of 2018 before it really started taking off. And it's, it was really just around MFA. Um, we were on an RMM that didn't have MFA. We did recognize the vulnerability and this, the, the RMM at the time required a third party application that was going to require a lot of setup for MFA that we didn't want to deal with. Plus we were kind of fed up with the RMM. So we moved to a new RMM that had MFA built in. And we were literally in the, luckily, well, luckily, maybe not unluckily, <laughs> we had about half of our clients move to the new RMM by the time this happened. So only half of our clients were affected that were still on the old RMM. And what happened was it was a phishing email that was sent to one of my employees that they fell for. We didn't have other layers of security that we now have in place, like probably DNS filtering would have prevented that. Um, the MFA obviously would have prevented that. <laughs> um, so they got into the RMM and literally over a weekend just logged in and out of as many machines as they could. It was about 113 machines across 37 clients and disabled the antivirus because they had administrator access. Um, the RMM we were um, previously on, if you didn't log out of the session, if you just like closed the X on the window, it left, left the session logged in. So you could literally take over that session just by re-initiating another remote um, console. So, that's why they only hit 113 is because they were going in and out seeing which one, which consoles were logged in. Cause luckily they, they didn't have end user or administrator passwords, but anyone that left their console logged in, they could take over. Right. Um, so yeah, they disabled uh, the antivirus and they deployed what looked to be a delayed payload of ransomware because we have a lot of these clients work through the weekend and we didn't hear it was crickets until Monday morning. And then it was like, everything just blew up like literally one call after the other. And, and when we looked back at like the timing of everything, it looked like the, the rent, it wasn't really kicking off till Monday morning. So it was almost like they didn't want us to know what they were doing all weekend. 
so that they could get into as many machines as possible because they knew there was a single threat vector, our RMM, that we could just cut off if we wanted. So, and then they knew Monday morning, right, everyone's back to work, they better, they better get that thing deployed so they can cause damage and try to collect money. That is insane. Um, the other thing they did is they looked on the network for local backups, which at the time, another issue we had is the same account that was like administrator for a server was also the same account used on our backup device, same credentials. They're part of the domain. Now we have separate credentials. We use a separate set of credentials for our backup devices versus, you know, admin on the server. So they were able to delete local backups on the network as well. So luckily we had backups of backups for 36 out of 37 of the clients. We only had to pay ransomware for, for one of the clients. And then later another client, um, because one of their backups wasn't uh, completely usable. So. so so, you ended up paying the ransom out of your pocket because it was your FO. I see. Mm-hmm. All right. So, uh, talk to me about like what what does ransom cost? Like, because I remember you know it was like send me I think it was the equivalent of like eight hundred dollars in Bitcoin when they when they ransom a computer. So like that couldn't have been too bad then. You know, so you had to pay for two clients. That's you know a couple thousand dollars you had to spend on this. And it's that's not too bad, right? Um. Well, at the time, Bitcoin. So. This is back in 2018. It's done a little differently now. Um, and back in those times, they didn't really define a dollar amount like I'm seeing them doing now. Now they've gotten privy to the idea that Bitcoin goes up and down. It's so volatile that what they care more about is the dollar amount. Um, back then, it was like one Bitcoin is what they wanted. And that, a Bitcoin, that sounds expensive. At, at that time, well, now it wouldn't be as expensive, but at that time, a Bitcoin was like around 10 grand per client, right? So if you've got 37 clients, you know, that's a ton of money. Um, did you pay did, for every client? No, just two I, clients. Okay, that's what I thought. I, I got nervous yeah. when you said 37. Like, Well, I'm just saying when you think of that idea of, having to pay that for 37 clients when you're looking at a Bitcoin per client. Initially, you're like, restore from backups, avoid paying, you know, ransom. And, and the general premise is you don't want to pay the ransom anyway because it promotes that behavior to continue, right? Right, right. Um, so, and and I'm sure they got super excited when they logged in to like 37 clients, 37 bitcoins, $10,000. So as long as all goes well, we're going to make, you know, over a quarter million dollars. Yeah. So so it didn't go as the hacker planned. They only got 20 grand out either. Yeah. But, you know, what was interesting, it was a a huge learning experience. Number one, we didn't have any uh, breach remediation procedures in place for something like this. We'd never been, you know, we, we had no direction from our insurance company, really, because it was oh, so cool. Um, and so we were kind of just creating our breach remediation procedures on the fly and trying. It was like the biggest fire drill we'd ever been through. It was about a two-week remediation. 
dealing with restoring backups and getting people back up and running. And by the end of that two weeks, what we had realized um, is that we could have negotiated the ransom. Like that's a the, thing? That's a thing. And, and they actually, nowadays, they actually, the insurance companies, now that insurance companies are privy to this, they have ransomware negotiators. They will get involved and help you, you know, and basically negotiate the price down for you. That, that's literally like a hostage negotiator for your computers. Yeah. And wow. so I realized that on the second client, because I was hesitant wanting to pay it for the second client because we had a decent chunk of their data. It was just some of it was missing. And all of a sudden, they, the ransomware guy started negotiating with us. Well, you know, how about if I bring it down to this price? And, and in that time frame, he finally said, I'll tell you what, I'll give you all the keys to all your clients for 50 grand. Well, that sounds like a bargain, considering. If we wouldn't have already spent all the time restoring everyone's backups and getting them all back up and running, but would you would you really trust it though? That's the other that's the other side of this coin, you know. Like, like okay, yeah. So we got all the keys, but I would feel so much more comfortable just restoring everything from backup. That's that's a part of it too. I mean, there are processes that you make sure you do to make to verify the keys are going to work. Because mm -hmm. essentially what they do is they like, they allow you to, you know, use the key to restore like a folder of files to prove, hey, this does actually encrypt it. So what you do is you send them the encrypted files, right? And, and then they allow you to decrypt just those to prove that it works. Um, so here's our QuickBooks file. Like decrypt this one real quick, and then they decrypt it. And you're like, oh, that's all I needed. Sucks. Yeah. <laughs> hey, maybe that's all you needed. Um, so yeah, I mean, there is that worry. And the other thing to think about too is this is a business, right? Like, which is insane. How poor? Like, the guy that we were talking with via email, which, <laughs> by the way, I created a Gmail address to talk with this guy because I didn't want to like give him any more identity than he already had. Oh, the Gmail address, and I still have it if anyone wants to buy it off me, taken by ransomware at gmail.com. <laughs> so I'm emailing him from this account, but his attitude was like, he's just, you know, it's, it's almost like the mob where everyone's disconnected from each other, and you've got like the marketing department, right, that's sending out these phishing campaigns. And then once you once someone gets hooked, literally hooked, right? Fishing campaign. Um, the marketing department gets their cut, and then they get sent over to tech support, which is literally what this guy said he was. He's like, we've never had an unhappy or dissatisfied customer. Like he's using verbiage like that. Like he's here to help us. He wasn't part of initially causing this issue. He's the tech support that's going to help us get out of this issue. That was his position. Yet later, he's negotiating prices down, right? Which I thought was kind of funny. But that they 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 treat this as a business. So for them to take your money and then not have the keys work harms their business model and their image. And it's it's going to cause us to tell everyone else in the world, don't pay the ransomware because it won't work. And then now their business model 
you know, is weakened because they have a bad reputation of their keys not working. Does that make sense? So in a way they want, they want it to work. As long as they get their money, they want to make sure you get your files back. That's not to say that if you don't patch all your vulnerabilities, they won't try to hit you again six months or a year later, right? And try to get more money. Well, I mean, they, they, they know you're dumb enough to, to do it. So yeah. yeah. So I was, I was reading a stat. It's a $1.5 trillion um, cyber crime economy right now. I mean, it's literally getting up there with oil. Um, and so it literally is a business. I mean, they, they're, they, they want to make sure that they're providing good customer support so that they get paid regularly. <laughs> That's insane. And, and I think that these guys actually have like a, a customer support department. Uh, it, it actually, it makes, it, it makes my blood boil and my stomach turn all at the same time. Yeah, at the time, I think I was a little crazy, so I kind of laughed at the idea. I was just like, I mean, it was the, I used to say building my house was the most stressful thing that I've ever done. But now it's definitely going through that was the most stressful thing. Just having all those clients down, my team, oh my gosh, like if it wasn't for my team, we wouldn't have made it through that. I was worried about an employee walking off the job from the stress, you know. Um, it's not... You know, and because the, the hard part is it's like technically our fault. So when you call up a client and let them know they've been ransomed, the last thing you want to do is lie about anything. You know what I mean? So we were upfront and honest. Hey, one of our tools that we use to manage your computers was compromised and it's caused this ransomware infection that we've got to deal with now. So, and, so when you do that, like I know if uh, some companies are breached, they have uh, a requirement to notify customers that you know, PII or other types of information have been, have been you know, potentially taken. Um, with that said, like, did, were, you, were you required to do this by law, like notify your clients? I, at the time, no, this is 2018. I wasn't required, but I did it anyway. And I, I also had, um, I worked with two security companies, one from the insurance company, because I wanted to use someone that they vetted so that they couldn't come back and try to say we did something wrong or didn't do something to try to not fund us somewhere, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then one afterwards to kind of not only check double check our work, but even our network and identify any vulnerabilities left over, which is pretty much all SaaS products that we're dealing with. Um, but we made sure there wasn't any remnants left over and um, they identified whether or not there's any data actually taken, right? Data loss is, is kind of what they call it. You know, when so, data leaves the environment. So this sounds like you're, you're, you're paying a company to like audit you basically, right? And is that payment covered by insurance? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, the insurance had no problem paying the Bitcoin at all. That was the first thing they paid out, which is why they now have Bitcoin ransomware negotiators. Sure. 
They want to they save money where they can, those insurance companies. And to tell you the truth, you know, I, I'm, I'm not one to promote like, hey, paying the ransom is your first go-to, but usually you can quickly identify how quickly you can get the client back up and running. And we've seen issues like the city of Atlanta, you know, where they were stubborn, didn't want to pay the Bitcoin, but maybe didn't realize that, hey, they're going to be down so long, it's going to cost them a ton more money in the downtime than the Bitcoin would have cost, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, sometimes you got to weigh your losses and not be so stubborn and just realize, hey, I got to cut my losses. Yeah, I might be promoting this behavior happening more, but at least I'm not costing all these taxpayers all this extra money, right? And so, you know, that's something to consider. Um, it's not something that I would publish a headline about because, you know, first thing you should do is pay the ransom because the oh, of course. ransomware people love that. And I think oh, 60 sweet. minutes, I think 60 minutes did something like that last year, which I was kind of disappointed about. Um, <laughs> but um, anyway, yeah, so um, I just lost track of what we were talking about. We went off on the... It's okay. So, so, so walk me through this. So you, um, are you able to turn your volume down? Cause I'm like bleeding through your speakers. I'm sorry. Um, all, right. all right. So you, you were able to get your insurance company to help you take care of all this stuff, but it's still, I mean, it's still costing money, but you just got reimbursed for it. Later, right. So with that said, um, what does like that, that auditor type company, what does something like that cost oh, for you to right. bring out a professional? Yeah, so we were we were talking about the security companies. Um, mm -hmm. The first one was about thirty-five grand, um, and they combed all of the client networks that were affected, including ours. Um, and the second one was about fifteen grand, and that was more of a high-level check. They didn't have to go in depth as much because they were able to use the reports from the other company. And so they they were basically just kind of double checking their work, giving you that second set of eyes, like when you go to a doctor to get that second opinion, right? Yeah. And they focused more in like on our SaaS products too, to try to help us identify vulnerabilities there. So with the fact that you know, immediately after this, we moved everything to the cloud. The RMM server we had at the time, the one that was compromised, was technically an in-house server. The new RMM we moved to is a board-in-the-cloud solution. So um, we immediately moved everything to the cloud. So we didn't have anything on our network anymore. Right. So it was more of like, what are the vulnerabilities of our cloud vendors and integrations? And API keys were a big one, obviously MFA was a big one. We still had some of these vendors that didn't support MFA. Luckily, now all of them do. Um, and then API keys now are being supported. We only have one vendor that doesn't have API key integration um, that we're working to get that set up with. So, you know, understanding how you're accessing, I think the realization is that, you know, the new edge is no longer like a firewall your network, the new edge is your identity. Absolutely. And your, your identity has access to sensitive information that if compromised can be held for ransom, could cause damage. 
So you have to protect your identity, right? And, and especially out being out in the cloud now, looking at everything you access out in the cloud and at the very least getting MFA on that, right? Um, especially if it's anything that contains PII data or compromising data. And then if you have all these tools out in the cloud that are talking to each other, typically you've got to set up accounts, right? Where they're integration accounts, they're talking to each other with. And traditionally APIs don't play nicely with MFA because there's no way for them. An API doesn't have a mobile phone they can look up a key on, right? Like a user does. So that's why you have these API keys that help identify that's kind of like with a VPN, you know, cert certificate, you know, point to point verification or SSL. And so um, luckily uh, all of our vendors, except one are up on that as well. So that then you're kind of covering your access into the tools. And then the next level is kind of looking at whether or not the vendors like, you know, have, what compliances do they have in place? I've heard mixed things about like SOC 2 compliance, how it's very easy to pass and you could still potentially have some vulnerabilities, but there's things like that that you could look into. Um, and it at least tells you your vendor cares about security when they're trying to go after something like that. Um, and so, you know, I think that's probably one of the things to consider is if you're gonna be using these tools you want to pick vendors that are security forward and that listen to their partners. And it's hard to find vendors like that that are going to give you that much focus if they're not 100% channel focused. Like if they're also selling to consumers, their yeah. business, right? So that's one of the things I realized too as I was going to all these cloud services and kind of picking and choosing vendors and learning which ones I liked and didn't like. I found the ones that were like 100% channel focused or more in line with my wants and needs. Hmm. So let, let me ask you this. You, so you did the, uh, the ransom for a couple of clients. You did a lot of, of backup recovery for the other clients. Did the insurance company end up like paying the labor on that? Like how does that work? Um, your audio is coming through a little muffled. I don't know if the recording's that way. I just wanted to give you a heads up. Good to I, did, I did hear you though. Uh, okay. Go ahead. So, so I just want to you know. Okay. So I, I was just asking, does the um, does the insurance company pay you for your labor recovering all these backups and all the things that you had to have your team do to fix this issue? Um, yes and no is the best answer, shortest answer there. And to okay. go into more depth, um, it was definitely like pulling teeth. Um, the insurance company, uh, I'm not naming any vendors during this just because That's I've fine. learned that that gets me into hot water sometimes. I don't, I don't want us to get into hot water. Yeah. Right? Let's, Especially let's because it's not, it, it's not always necessarily the vendor's fault. You know, especially like at this time, like this insurance company might be doing a lot better now than they did two years ago with me, right? Well, this, this was they, a kind of a, a new precedent a that you set. Yeah, yeah. 
So at the time, they didn't even really understand the, the MSP business model because I was presenting them with two types of losses. Um, first of all, like, to give you a quick answer on the no for the labor they don't cover, any of my employees that are working full time, I don't get covered for any of their labor. I did hire four people during this to help us remediate it faster. Mm. They did pay for their labor. Because okay. that was outside extra labor that was needed, right? But they considered my existing employees like, you're going to pay them no matter what, right? We're not covering any of their labor. Um, but but there is loss of income because of this, right? And yes. so the, the, that was the other thing I reported. And that was what they had trouble understanding is the difference between our recurring income and our one-time project income. And I literally had to do some research online. I found this really good website that explained the MSP business model and, and what recurring income is versus one-time project that I had to send them before they realized, oh, we understand what you're submitting now. Because gotcha. they paid out my, my loss of recurring income first, which was based on contracts. Very easy math, right? Sure. It, was, um, it was basically... Uh, we lost three clients from this, um, and then there is growth that we lost, that we missed out on too, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which could, which is like a percentage based on previous years. So our recurring income was growing like, if I remember correctly, around fifteen percent, maybe twenty percent. No, no, no. Our profit margin was fifteen percent. Mm-hmm. Our recurring income was growing thirty percent year over year for the past three years. And um, they, they applied that to our current recurring income. And then we projected what we should have made by the end of the year. And then that was considered a growth, loss of growth, right? Um, along with those contracts. So that was fairly easy math. They paid that out. And I said, well, we've still got this one-time project income that you haven't paid out. And um, because during this time, like literally for two to three months, even though it took mainly two weeks to remediate. We had all our, most of our projects were put on pause as we had to pick up the pieces from this event and like move, you know, get all the way migrated to our new RMM to prevent that old RMM from, you know, potentially causing an issue again. Um, To get some other tools, like we're literally securing ourselves to prevent something like this from happening again, because we knew the vector, we 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 essentially knew we got caught with our pants down is essentially what happened. That's uh, politically correct to say <laughs> in this day and age, but that's what it felt like, right? You know, um, and so we were we needed to cover all that. So we so we had you know our project income uh, is typically about. 30% of our monthly gross income, you know? And so that was a loss as well. And they didn't understand that. They thought, oh no, you've got this contract work. We've already paid you for that. And then that's what I had to fight tooth and nail with. It took about a, a year, almost a year and a half before I got all my funding. Total losses that I was able to track, which is like gross loss, you know, including my loss of growth was about $500,000, right? 
That's why I look back at that $50,000 to get all the keys. I would have loved to pay that. <laughs> um, hard losses, like money out of the bank, was about 250K. And are, are we saying that these would be added together? No. Okay, so the, the gross, the, the half a million, that's all, all, everything overall, but actual money out of the bank is quarter million. About half of that, yeah. Okay. And then the bank ended up um, funding us 150K. The bank or insurance? I'm sorry, the insurance company, yes. Wow. Um, so, you know, we had 100K hard loss and, you know, 350K gross loss. And to give you an idea of numbers, we were on track to do $1.8 million that year in 2018. Um, it's a firm, we had 13 employees and about 75 clients across. guys reference there. And we ended the year at 1.5 million. So we ended the year negative 300K from our projected turnout. Just so you know, the, um, the internet connection cut out. So I heard 75 clients across. And then you came back saying that you lost, you know, you're at 1.5. So, so I think you might, you might have been about to tell me how many endpoints maybe? Yeah. So um, 13 employees, um, 75 clients, 2,000 endpoints. We were on track to do 1.8 million for 2018, the year we got breached, and we finished at 1.5 million. Okay. Which is so, a pretty pay loss, yeah. You got to say, though, like, let's let's try and be positive about this. Man, you got breached. You got your ass handed to you, right? Like, an employee screwed up. An, an employee of yours got fixed. Did you fire the employee? No. Yeah, are they still there today? They're still there today, yeah. I didn't, I didn't fire any employees through this. There is a lot of, I was talking to some MSPs online that when I'm talking to them about my financials, they're like, get rid of employees because you're, you know, you're not making any money. I had a negative 2% profit margin that year. And, and I was like, no, like these employees got me through this. The last thing I want to do is fire anyone from a team who helped my MSP survive this breach like this is a going out of business event that could have been right absolutely could have so that's and that's what i mean like let's look at this in a positive way like you could have had your business absolutely destroyed you know this yeah. this could have given you some like bad local news press this could have like just shit all over your name you know yeah. but but it didn't you know, you did all the right things, even though you didn't necessarily know what to do, because again, for you, it was like unprecedented, right? So you, you brought in experts that, that knew how to, how to do this. You had two companies come in and basically audit everything and verify that, all right, you guys are safe, you're clear, you, you did everything you needed to do. They might've given you a list of some other things to do, and then you, you did it. You lost three clients out of 75. That's not bad, man. Yeah. Um, and, and because you were in the middle of a migration from one RMM to another, 
only half of your clients got hit. So, you, and, and out of those clients that got hit, you had backups for all, everything, but two clients. So I think this, this shows that an MSP that's doing, you know, mid to high $1 million, right, uh, range, even an MSP of that size can just have an epic screw up. And, and that we're talking about an MSP that has a bunch of employees, has a bunch of, of brains, right, that are all able to think about, hey, what, what should we be doing for our clients just on a regular basis? And with all of those brains, a couple things got either overlooked or put on the back burner just long enough for somebody to sneak in and screw you guys, right? Yeah. Think about what would have happened to a smaller MSP. You know, maybe an MSP doing half a million, a quarter million. You know, an MSP doing 180,000, this would have shut them down. They would have lost half their clients or something because they don't even have all the tools probably that you had. And I bet you've got a lot more tools now. I, I bet this I bet this probably changed your mind about some things about and, and kind of changed your perspective on how you on how you operate your MSB. Yeah. Yeah. So talk to yeah. me about that. So well, I want to touch on the PR side real quick because I think we got lucky this was early in the game before mm -hmm. a lot of MSPs were getting targeted or that it at least made the news. Um, so the fact that we communicated with our clients, which we still feel like we could have done a better job um, of that, um, and, and we're honest, um, we didn't really have our clients reaching out to people other than us mm -hmm. saying, what's going on? ITech, you know, we're down. We can't get a hold of ITech, right? There's been some MSPs that like ghost their clients. And then all of a sudden the clients are reaching out to the general public saying, trying to figure out what's going on. So it didn't never hit the news. We did have a PR company on standby that the insurance company was willing to pay for to help clean up our uh, image and, and, and kind of Which is awesome. what happened. So that's definitely something we had geared up and ready to go, but luckily we didn't have to deal with that. But yeah, it was definitely a moment of reflection for me. It was realizing that, um, especially after trying to uh, going through the exercise of um, sending the insurance company, our loss of recurring income versus project, it opened my eyes up to the fact that, wow, man, I've got a business model that's got recurring income that covers all my expenses plus a little profit. And like the project stuff is really where we get the majority of our profit from. And, um, and so my concern was I realized I was doing it wrong in the sense that I was so focused on getting new clients and growing my business, adding on new clients. I, there was focus taken away from securing my existing income that I had already worked so hard to obtain, right? I already had a decent amount of recurring income, which just by itself creates a, a pipeline of projects to you know, keep all our clients up to date, date with new technologies, especially with the Office 365 push. Um, so, and then moving out to the cloud, of course, a lot of, some of our clients still aren't 100% on the cloud. And so I, 
I literally went two years, uh, in fact, still haven't. We're going to be, because of this COVID situation, uh, we were just going to start marketing this year to take on new clients. We haven't taken on any new clients for two years. We've literally been reposturing ourselves as a security first MSP, learning about what layers we want to have in place, what kind of stacks and, and service you know, tools we want to use to keep our clients secure. The first thing we did was make ourselves secure, right? And then now we're going back to our existing client base over all this time, and we still have some clients that we need to address um, and getting them secure with the same stack because you know, we were a vector that, you know, break into an MSP and you have access to multiple clients, right? Mm -hmm. We, we protected that. And now, you know, with the, the, we're drinking our own champagne and, but we got to share that champagne with our clients. You know what I mean? This guy, it's not even Kool-Aid, it's champagne. <laughs> um, and cause we could have a client overnight potentially go out of business. And then that's re that's existing recurring income that's low-hanging fruit that we already have that's much easier to keep than trying to find replacement income that we need to secure and make more sticky. And, you know, so that was something, too, over the past two years that really opened my eyes up, too, is, like, we've grown with our existing client base. We, we got back up to that $1.8 million in 2019 good for you so we went from the 1.5 million <laughs> 2018 negative two percent profit margin to a um 1.8 million and we were like five percent profit margin positive right Nin mm -hmm. 2019 and so it was it was 2019 was really digging ourselves out of the hole and getting back on track so what um just curious what was your profit margin in 2019? 5%. Okay. Which is, which is still, which is low, right? I mean, we previously, before this event, we were getting 15%. Well, but, but I just want to clarify, that is even like after you pay yourself, right? Well, the reason that that's low is because we invested in a lot of security tools we didn't uh -huh. have previously, and we haven't, a lot of these have initial buy-ins that, you know, we're going to be, re we're reselling to our clients. So we have expenses up front that we paid for that we have yet to reap the benefits from, the rewards from, until we get it deployed and sold to our clients. Um, but I think the thing I'm, the reason I care less about the 5% profit margin is just because we got back up to that number. When I saw the 1.5 million, that set us back like a year and a half on our growth model. And then we were able to like re-catch up and only be, you know, technically, I guess, a year behind, but back where we started before this event. And in my op opinion, much better positioned to where I don't care as much about growth anymore. I was getting that 30% year over year growth. Um, I care more about efficiency with how we deliver and manage our services to our existing clients and making sure security um, layers are in place and I care more about profit margin with my existing business than I do growth with new business. So that's what I'm working on fine tuning right now is I've got all this low hanging fruit, existing clients that I could help out more 
and fine-tune profit margin with sure. through efficiencies and, and sure. security services. So, so let's um, let's talk about that for a second. So, you brought on zero new clients since all of this went down. You yes. got yourself. You lost three. You got yourself back up to the one point eight million, and your profit margins lower. However, you've spent a boatload of money on SaaS apps and solutions, products, you know, whatever we want to call it, right? And and all this money that you spent on this stuff, you might not have even necessarily deployed it to clients, but you're paying for it because, uh, you know, a, a plethora of reasons. You know, you, you need to learn it, you need to figure out how to sell it, you need to figure out how to position it, you need to actually have time to get in front of the clients to do that. So, I mean, I'm not going to, I'm not going to say it's one of those things. It's all of those things, you know. But um, with that said, you got to you got to start working on getting more clients. And you and I have been talking about that a lot over the last few months. But what um, when when you go out and you buy all this security stuff? What are you looking for? Like, what kind of boxes are you trying to check off? Why are you going out and buying all this other security stuff? You know, like, oh, it needs like, you know, antivirus, some MFA and uh, DNS filtering and a nice SOCOS firewall. And that's, that's all we need, right? Yeah. Well, <laughs> no. the, the, other, the other item that you forgot to mention is the money I wasted on security tools that I thought I wanted to use and decided not to. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> So when I came out of this, I had this like, and I still have it to a degree, this like PTSD, you know, about never wanting something like that to happen again. So initially I came out of this going, you know what? We're going to become an MSSP. And so that- yeah, I remember, I remember uh, a group of us, including me even, were giving you a really hard time uh, by calling yourself an MSSP, um, but but you aren't an MSSP. You're not a managed security service provider. You're an MSP with focus on security. That's ultimately what I you know ended up with security first MSP. But and, and it was part of it. It was me being naive on what it really takes to be an MSSP, but wanting to be one so that I felt more secure. Right. So. You know, I reached out to tons of forums and communities trying to figure out what security layers are, do I need to be worried about and what potential tools or best practices can I implement to cover those vulnerabilities, right? And so it was good and bad, the exercise of wanting to be an MSP, MSSP. It was good because I was on, I had this motivation and this drive to want to create the best security stack out there, right? It's like, if I'm going to become an MSSP, I got to check all the boxes. Mm -hmm. So I created this huge stack, learned about a ton of products, talked with CISOs with some of our vendors, reached out to different communities, got feedback, got trolled, got feedback, got trolled. Uh, <laughs> and, um, I'm noticing a trend. Of, you get you that's get part of learning, right? You got to get trolled a little bit, and um, otherwise, you know, you're not talking to people that are smarter than you with egos. So, uh, 
So true. Um, so anyway, uh, I ended up creating this huge stack and then I went to, and then I looked at my client base and I was like, all right, I got to go sell this to my clients now. And I realized, I realized a couple things. Number one, if I'm going to call myself an MSSP, I really need to have security professionals on staff, people that live and breathe security, like a sock type situation, right? Their nose is in logs, looking at SIM, identifying false positives, shaping network behavior. Like it's, it's literally a different echelon of employee than anything I have on staff and they're expensive employees, right? To bring in. And if I don't have enough work for them, now I'm, I'm spending too much money and I'm not making profit. So it didn't make sense for my current business model, especially in the area I am because there's not enough demand for it. It made more sense to partner with an MSSP and have them do a lot of that heavy lifting, right? And then become a security first MSP. And then even, even in that realization, I still had this huge stack that I created of all these security services. And by the time you price it all out and you go to try to sell it to these clients that basically all they had was email security and antivirus before, which is typically what people tend to have, they're just overwhelmed. And, and you know, no matter how much fear, uncertainty, and doubt you try to feed to them about they need all of this, it, some companies could go out of business paying for security. There's so much security out there. Um, so it, it made me realize I had to pare it down. And that's what I've been working on. You know, I, I feel like I've got to a good point now. Paring down to the, the bare necessities, which kind of is our like entry level bronze package, if you will. And then I've got like a, you know, I'm using bronze, silver, gold just to help identify the three layer. Uh, I'm not set sure. on that. Thing, sure. but, um, and then like the gold would be more like an enterprise, a larger client, maybe a co-managed client that, that that's large enough to need some of these more advanced security services. And then these more advanced security services, we're not necessarily delivering them. We're reselling them through from an MSSP who's managing the back end because any enterprise security product isn't really MSP friendly to manage. It's going to cause too many false positives that you that's going to weigh your team down, you know, and just overwhelm them and not allow them to keep their eye on the ball. And so you really need, like, back to the point, you need that professional that lives and breathes this that can quickly identify and help you shape that network behavior. Um, so that's kind of what I've come to today and was, you know, we're, we're looking at going to the co-managed space as well, um, trying that out. We've got a couple co-managed clients out right now that we like how it's working. Um, but ultimately, whatever we do is security first and identifying upfront what those security vulnerabilities are with our clients so that we can create some sort of plan to, to shore up their security within a decent amount of time. All right. So what's your stack? Oh, <laughs> um, that's the tough question. You know, you got like uh, 27 tools, right? Some, some like ridiculous number that that's in your stack. So I think what I came to realize too, is that you can't really, it's not about finding a tool for every for every vulnerability. It's not just about tools. There's a good chunk of tools we use to help us 
mitigate and cover vulnerabilities that are out there. But I think ultimately what I've learned, if you think about the fact that identity is the new edge, it's no longer a firewall. Um, you really have to come up with some stack you're going to standardize your clients on around user management and device management. And so the stack that we've picked um, is the Microsoft stack with Azure AD and Intune. And so that's our big push is to initially get all of our existing clients and then any new client that comes on board, it's like a requirement that we've got them on Azure AD. If they've got in-house domain controllers, we're doing the AD sync. Um, we still want them on Azure AD and then uh, Intune. Because at that point, you've got a single source of truth for understanding all the users you're responsible for managing and all the devices you're responsible for managing. Because- That, that is right. a, a phrase or a term that you just love, single source of truth. I've only said it once so far. T today, <laughs> yes. Privately, <laughs> Privately, you've said that hundreds of times though, I'm sure of it. Um, yeah. so I don't think a single source of truth exists, Brian. And the reason I say that is, you know, so you've got your, your Microsoft 365 stuff, which is a very, very long list of tools, right? But it includes Intune. You've got your PSA, you've got your RMM, you know, some people have got their, their bright gauge or, or some type of dashboarding tool. You know, you've got your, uh, your client engagement tool, whether that's Envirosoft or uh, Cloud Radial, uh, Tech Director, there's probably a couple others, or maybe it's a combination of all of them, who knows? But like, there is no such thing as a single source of truth because like, not one of these things like aggregates information from every single thing. But that's exactly why you need to pick something to be your single source of truth. If you think about it, what are you responsible for managing, maintaining, and securing? You're right. You've got all of these tools. Mm -hmm. You're never going to be 100% perfect where every user and every device is on every tool. Right. But if you, if you come up with a, a stack that you're going to consistently deploy and you're going to say, okay, we can't support that new user or that new device until at least this gets installed. You can create a single source of truth that then you're hoping to eventually integrate all these other tools with so that, that you're not having double entry, you know, human error where things aren't getting inputted or at least showing up on a list telling you, Hey, there's this new user that we've synchronized with Azure that you need to do X, Y, Z with in this tool now. Right. Um, so you're right. I mean, it, it, you're right to a, an extent in the sense that not all these tools talk to each other, but if we're talking about wanting to get towards a single source of truth, you can make that happen with at least one tool set and then work towards getting all your other tools to integrate in a way where they can synchronize and create an easier way to keep them all updated, if that makes sense. It does. It, it almost sounds like you're, you're going to pigeon yourself, pigeonhole yourself into certain tools, though, because it, it does sound like you're looking for tools that will work with certain tools, right? 
Yeah, and you know, I that's something that a lot of MSPs are reluctant to do. Um, and it even took me a while. It's kind of that entrepreneurial stubbornness. Like, do I really want to have all of my clients relying on Microsoft? But if you look at the big picture, it's what Microsoft or Google. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you're talking about virtualized environments, AWS, or like creating your own or using a third party. Um, and in my opinion, Microsoft, just with their advancements in Office 365, Teams, I'm going to bring it up, Teams. Um, you do love your Teams. And, and the fact that all my clients have it on-prem, Microsoft AD, like they're pushing everyone out to Azure AD. Like eventually you won't have on-prem ADs anymore. And it just kind of made sense. So yeah, I'm, I'm drinking the Microsoft Kool-Aid, if you will. And just realizing that's what I need to standardize on if I want to make my life easier. Um, I'm not fighting that, I guess. Is, is, is what, and then, yeah, any other tools I get, I mean, I would imagine Microsoft's a big enough name. They're going to want to have some sort of integration, right, eventually. Okay. So you brought up Teams. We're going we're gonna to change because ADD is, is real. Okay, guys? It's, it's real. It's real thing. All right. So teams, you love teams. Um, you, you brought it up. I think, uh, I didn't keep count. I'm not going to lie, but I, I'm pretty sure it was at least 57 times in the last podcast we did. You love teams and, uh, you, you are using teams voice or we're just going to call it that whether that's what they call it or not, but you're using teams like telephony right? Um, you and I did talk briefly in the last one about how um, uh, Bevoid, George is actually working on, well, it's not that he's working on, he's already, he's already got it working, but uh, uh, Bevoid can kind of like integrate with, with Teams. So did, did you look at that at all? Yeah, so that does, I did actually, I reached out to him the next day on, okay. on another webinar we were on together. I forget which one it was. Oh, so funny. I was privately, you know, Zoom chatting him. And um, it looks like it does currently require like a back-end PBX, which makes sense because you can't integrate an existing PBX with Teams, um, which we may eventually do. I really like the idea of being able to do screen pops with, with my Autotask PSA. Um, right, right. So it's, it's a really cool sounding feature. I mean, and we had that because we were on 3CX before with Bevoid, and then we lost that as part of Teams. But now, if you think about it, well, why don't we get Autotask PSA to integrate with Teams? <laughs> so I'm pushing for that. It's one of the things on my list. Yeah. Good for you. Yeah. So, so, um, are you going to do it? You're going to do the Bevoid and Teams voice thing? It's not at the top of my list right now because I have other irons in the fire, especially with the COVID situation. Um, um, so it depends. We'll see. Uh, it's something I'm entertaining, but like if, if Autotask does an integration somehow or it's got it on, they've got it on the roadmap, I might just wait for that. Okay. Um, all right. So let's see. Uh, you kind of started talking about your stack, and I, I am sure I cut you off at some point. So run, run through. 
just run through like the the software real quick and then don't i don't know that people necessarily need to the history of of each thing necessarily yeah, so just to get back to the microsoft stack um single source of truth for users and devices that really gives you the ability to then go to like an SSO solution for mm -hmm. your clients where you can even, even do um, zero trust when it comes to like uh, device security. So not only is this user logging in with a set of user credentials that are protected by MFA, but are they also logging in from an approved device that has Intune on it, right? So it actually gives you that extra layer of security you know, that you could even combine with trusted locations, right? IP addresses and things like that. So that's because I feel like um, securing the identity is the lowest hanging fruit. That's the one of the first things we, we want to get deployed. Now, there's other things, too. There's email security. But, you know, when you look at the Microsoft stack, it does a lot of built-in security on its own, depending on what licensing level you have, that in some cases we just need to augment. So that's the other thing I like about the Microsoft stack is we don't, we don't need as many tools um, when you're using that and embracing the higher level of licensing that it has. Hmm. So we do use the built-in Office 365 email security as the first line of defense. Um, and then we've, we've got a, um, an API integrated email security that helps with phishing. Um, so, uh, Bade Secure is what we're using for that. Um, and then we've got, you know, password management for our clients that we resell them. Obviously, dark web scanning. What, what password management? Is that like the Passportal stuff, IT glue stuff? Oh, yeah. So we'll, I'll talk vendors since that's what you do, right? Talk vendors. We're talking yeah. good about vendors. So. Yeah, yeah. We can talk uh, good all day long. I mean, um, so password management is Passportal. Um, we went to that for documentation, too. And um, we came from IT Glue, uh, and I wanted to have everything in one place. I liked Passportal because it started out as a password manager. Um, sure. So that was really built around that, even though it, it isn't as feature rich as IT Glue with the documentation, they're getting there and they've got things on their roadmap. Um, but really, what I liked is the ease of reselling it to our clients to use as a password management system because. One of the things I was telling my clients is, you know, we have no idea how strong all your end user passwords are unless they're stored in some sort of encrypted database. And then we can run reports on how strong they are, how stale they are. And other, you know, without that, we have no idea. I mean, we could set um, policies that require strong passwords, but, you know, that's a lot of work to do across all the products they're doing. And you might miss where you use weak passwords. So, so if you if you get them to, to buy on to using the password manager tool, like you know we we not you but like I use uh, LastPass. Yeah. Um, you know a lot of people, a lot of MSPs are using some type of password manager tool because if you're a smart person, you've got a different password for every single for every single thing you log into. Um, otherwise, you're going to be in a lot of trouble when when you get fish. Ask Brian what that's like. Uh, so, so yeah, I mean, you, you can't remember all that unless you do something really stupid, like uh, same, pass, <laughs> same password and then you just like one. 
yeah. exclamation point. Like you got like five variations of, the, and then the, the other thing though is like, you know, you, you mentioned stale passwords. That is one thing that kind of, uh, kind of grinds my gears, like the, the whole stale password thing. So if, if it's a strong, a, a good, solid, strong password, I'm okay with a password, you know, living for a year, you know, but it's, it's gotta be like, you know, 27 characters and at least three of, of every single, you know, lowercase, uppercase number symbol. Um, you know, just, I get ridiculous and I get so pissed off. I don't know if you saw, uh, the other day in Slack, I, I posted in the main channel, um, American express, we take security seriously. Also American Express, uh, they would not allow me to have symbols in my password. So it has to be at least eight characters, one number, one uppercase, one lowercase, no symbols. Yeah. Like who, why? <laughs> you can't even do a passphrase with eight character limitation. So, uh, well, well, no, it's at least eight characters, not at most. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. But, but then there's the other ones, and I don't remember what I just logged into the other day uh, or, or created an account for, but it wouldn't let me have more than 20 characters. I'm like, yeah. screw you, I'll do 96 if I want to. Like, I don't understand. Why would you limit how long? Like, okay, make it 150. Don't be stupid. Don't make it 20. Those, yeah. those just make me... Those, those are the things that really grind my gears, people. Um, well, and mm. Microsoft recognized that, too, because they took off of their best practice list the idea of resetting your password every 90 days. Well, I believe that's because uh, who, who else recently, they changed their minds on it. Like the NSA or whatever recently yeah. said, you know what? It's actually okay to not change your password every night because what people were doing was they'll come up with a really good password. Like, I don't know, what's your dog's name, Brian? Uh, Bella. Bella, okay, cool. What's your uh, date of birth? <laughs> <laughs> what was the first car you owned, Brian? Mercedes. Man, he's just given up personally identifying for, <laughs> I am going to be able to, to start recovering passwords for you, Brian. You're good at this. Let's keep going. It's your mother's maiden name. I don't. I don't use any of those. Oh, okay. <laughs> I just. I don't remember what I. What I was. Oh, my Apple ID. Because uh, you know, I'm a big Apple guy. I've got my iPhone here. My uh, my Beats headphones. My my iPad Pro. A MacBook. And I'm I'm Apple everything, man. If, if Apple made a car, I'd figure out how to have it. You know. Um, so I was I was setting up a new Apple ID. Uh, to help a church do this um, developer account thing so they can push out a custom app for their church. Okay, cool. Uh, you know, pays the bills, right? So, um, so I had to set up that new Apple ID and, and it had all those, all those weird questions, you know, was the first car you owned? What, yeah. uh, what was your school mascot? You know, um, I don't even remember why I started on this path, Brian. Why did we start this? Just because, you know, those are being, those are security question answers that I just gave you, right. That I might potentially use. 
Yeah, and I don't remember what I was talking about yeah. before I even started teasing you and asking you those questions. People use those in their passwords. Oh, well. yes. So so that was a thing, though. So, like, people will use, like, you know, Bella, 1984, whatever year you were born, right? And then, uh, well, you got to change your password. It's been 90 days. Okay, Bella, 1984, one. <laughs> and, that's, and that's what they do. They just add a number at the end and, and change the number every time. And, you know, if, if that's all they're going to do, like, what's the point? So well, the other, the other issue is they end up forgetting it. So then it causes downtime or if they are using strong passwords, they're writing them down, like on a post-it. That's the best thing to do actually. <laughs> uh, but you know, it's okay because like you, you, as long as you stick it, to the bottom of the keyboard don't stick it on the desk under the keyboard you gotta stick it to the bottom of the keyboard that when they, when they move the keyboard and look on the desk the the people are like ah it's it's not there they, they don't flip over the keyboard brian yep <laughs> yeah yeah you just gotta outsmart these these criminals yeah it's i i wish browsers would store passwords in an encrypted manner because that's kind of the eye-opener for me when i learned more about security through all this as well all of our isn't, clients are storing passwords in browsers isn't they google do that, encrypted um they do that now with your yeah you're right they did add that recently a link okay. to your google account yeah um i believe so don't quote me on that but i well, remember I, um i don't know but but I guess what I'm getting at is, you know, when we Apple first encrypts your passwords. So yeah. if you actually, if you store your passwords in Safari or which, which it's actually, you're storing them to your iCloud account somehow, they're actually encrypted. Yeah. So I, th I think safe. the issue, even with the encrypted passwords of Google is like, you open up your Chrome browser and you're logged in and you can still export your passwords. Right. And the idea of your passwords being stored in a text, Form on the computers, if anyone ever gains access to your computer, they can quickly copy those. Well, now you're encrypting them, but you're leaving a user login session the minute you open a browser. You know, it's not asking for your credentials every time you open a browser. Mm -hmm. So even though they're encrypted, right? So when the computer's turned off, they're safe. And you're not booted into that user profile, they're safe. Um, but when you're in on that user profile, the fact that you're auto logged in, they're they're exposed, right? Yeah. So, um, but anyway, uh, back to the security tools. You want to run through those? Yeah. Yeah, do it, man. Sorry. So, uh, dark, web dark web monitoring, where you just stop me if you want to go into detail on any of these. Uh, we're doing ID agent, mm -hmm. um, phishing, email, uh, security, oh, that was made secure, um, simulated phishing attacks and security awareness training. Using no before on that. Um, we've got our next generation endpoint management, which is uh, Silence. That's actually an enterprise product mm -hmm. that's managed by our MSSP. Um, DNS filtering, we're using DNS filter. Um, love those guys. Um, we do have like a managed wireless. I don't know if you consider that security, but it's we present it as it's cloud managed by us. So the, the two products we're using right now are Datto and Meraki um, mm. that we like. Uh, 
endpoint uh, detection and response um, and vulnerability scanning and intrusion detection, SIM, are all uh, services managed by our MSSP too. It's kind of a bundle for those higher level clients, um, like say in a, like a gold package or silver for some of them. Um, and they use um, uh, Cyber Reason, Log Rhythm, and Event Tracker, um, which there are better SIM products out there than Event Tracker. Um, and we're, you know, we kind of, you know, one of the tricky things is like, we've got all these tools now and it's, there, there could be a better tool that comes out one to two years from now. So I try not to get too stuck on, you know, these are the tools that everyone has to use. Like there's other tools out there that are comparable to the tools I'm naming off that I wouldn't necessarily say don't use that in you know, from my opinion. Um, you know, there's certain aspects of these tools that made me want to use them. I think one of the biggest things is any tool that you're managing in-house, how easy is it to deploy, to train your staff on, to make sure you're using that tool properly? Because a tool is useless if, you're, if your staff struggles to implement it or manage or maintain it. Um, and then some of these enterprise level tools, like I said, it's, you could fail at them and it'd be worse than not having them at all. So you, you kind of want an MSSP to be there for you to, to handle the heavier lifting there. Um, the um, managed, like a managed firewall. For us, mm -hmm. we don't have this deployed across all our clients. And in my opinion, kind of back to my earlier comment, I think identity and device security is more important. We focus on getting all of those layers in before a firewall unless maybe it's a really huge network, mainly because we try to treat our devices and users like they're out in the wild. We have no idea what network they could potentially be on. So we don't want to rely on a firewall or a router to be providing services that they don't have, you know, uh, protection that they don't have either with their identity or with their device so that they could essentially be floating on any network. Um, but, uh, so we're, we've got, you know, Meraki um, and Sophos is the other one that we're looking at um, there. But again, that's not really low hanging fruit for us. That's more after we've done a lot of these other items, then we look into that. Um, BCDR stuff, definitely Datto. Um, and for our Office 365 cloud backup, we're doing the backupify from Datto. Um, I, think, I think you might be the only person I've ever heard call it BCDR. So I've always heard it as BDR. So I figure oh. I better clarify that just for the people that are like, it's, a, it's just business continuity disaster recovery, BCDR. Yeah, if you're familiar with the Datto products, and more and more products out there are doing this. Um, but, you know, what I really liked about the Datto products and the reason I call it BCDR is because if the server and the local backup device goes down, you literally can spin it up into the cloud. Mm. So it's got a continuity aspect to it where nice. we can still be running even if the building burns down. Datto's got, got a hell of a good product, man. Yeah. Well, 
products. They've got they've got a whole bunch of products now, but yeah, yeah they, they've got some good products. We, you know, it's interesting being that we're on the Microsoft stack. You'd think, hey, we're like embracing SharePoint and OneDrive, mm-hmm. and we do to an extent of the Teams integration back to Teams. Um, but we actually like Data Workplace for a file sync and share product better than what SharePoint and OneDrive has to offer, especially from a data governance position. When you look at the cost of licensing from Microsoft to get the advanced data governance, you're looking at a minimum of like $42 a user because you have to get the E3 plus the compliance. That's the cheapest way. I never thought of it like that, um, yeah. but with with Datto, let's let's call it you know ten fifteen bucks a user is your cost on that. Um, do you get the terabyte per user like Microsoft gives? Da- uh, Data Workplace is switched to unlimited. Now we're that's talking. Another thing that's that's amazing, right? Unlimited storage. Now they they've got like some file. Not necessarily limitations, but if you get up to too many files, which again is still larger than SharePoint OneDrive, they you they have like a clause in their support, like they don't support more than that amount, but it's like an enormous amount where it's like you're just data hoarding, like you need to clean up your data <laughs> so, on, a, you know, on a producer basis. So with that, um, all right, so, so data workplace for the everyday person, I'm sorry, everyday MSP, it sounds like data workplace might tick off a little, some some more boxes than Microsoft could simply because of pricing. If, if we're looking at uh, the data price versus the Microsoft price, you can get one and check off all the boxes, or you can spend three or four times as much and continue to check off all the boxes. Yeah, so cost to our clients, it's you know $35 a user to get the Microsoft Business Premium. Well, it used to be called Microsoft 365 Business. Now it's Microsoft 365 Business Premium, right? Uh, which is their $20 license, right? Comes with Azure AD, um, uh, Intune, uh, everything else that you need. And then the 15 bucks a month for Data Workplace, they're at 35 bucks a month. And... You know, so they're saving seven bucks a month per user and data workplace is much easier to configure, maintain, use, even for the end user. Hmm. Um, like our clients are able to look up their own audit trails and identify access to, to with very little to no training. I mean, the interface is very intuitive for when it comes to that. What about if someone's got a smaller hard drive, lots of files. I'm able to say like these files are online only, but synchronize these for offline usage. Yeah, so they just recently added um, a feature where it gives you the full folder and file tree the minute you connect. And then it's got little status icons for what's online only and what's downloaded. Mm. And you can pick and choose what you want to be local or you could have none of it be local. And then as you access each, each file, it on demand downloads it, you work with it, save it, and then it re-uploads the changes and then removes the file from your computer to free up the space. That's the that's the ticket right there. Cause like, uh, I, I know I've got some clients that are all about Dropbox 
I just love their Dropbox and, and Dropbox even has that smart storage feature, whatever they call it now. And uh, it, it doesn't do that. Yeah. It's not, it's not as smart as that of workplace from what I'm hearing. So I'm going to look into that. The other thing I like about data workplace is if you ever have a client that might have a hybrid environment where they're using a G suite, maybe they've got the free version grandfathered in, right? Like we are. <laughs> um, and office three, six, five, it integrates with both platforms. Um, so you could use Google Docs to manage files from Data Workplace, or you could use Office 365. Um, nice. And then we're also we're all, they're also working on a Teams integration, so that just like you have access to your SharePoint files in Teams, you can have access to your Data Workplace files as well. Very nice. What what else you got on that list? We didn't go through everything yet, did we? Um. We went through the majority of it, but um, some other items we use, so like remote desktop access, we've, we've used LogMeIn forever, and that's just kind of what we've used. So like during this latest COVID um, expansion of work from home, the majority of our clients who weren't already in the cloud, we just set up with LogMeIn to their workstation, and then it made us care le less about their home network. It's only $1,000 a month per computer, right? Um, we, we charge $10 a month, uh, for the, for our clients. Um, I feel like, I feel like you're undercharging just based on what log me in charges. Well, that's one of the, yeah, you're right. I mean, if you go to their website, if the client went direct, they'd have to pay more, mm -hmm. um, but we've used them so long. We've got some grandfathered in pricing. So we're able to, nice. you know, outbid them. <laughs> um, so you know, if we if we're ever in a situation where we got cloud file and folder backups or cloud image backups, we look we use the data products for that as well. Um, so that's kind of covers the backup, remote desktop. Um, for uh, we, a tool we just signed up for is Cloud Radial. That's going to kind of be one of our new client facing portals and integrations. Um, and through that, we're going to deliver uh, e learning. They have an integration with bigger brains, which is pretty awesome. Yes, they do. That I think uh, they actually just launched that after I did the podcast recording with Jeff. Yeah. I like that a lot because the interface to bigger brains seems a little outdated, like the direct interface. So mm -hmm. when I'm selling my clients e-learning and I'm giving them this older interface, you know, <laughs> It's kind of like, you know, are you sure this is the best e-learning courses I should be using? Um, but yeah, the, the cloud radial integration, when, when he showed me that, I don't have it completely set up yet, is, is pretty amazing. That's um, really cool. Uh, so, I mean, as far as like MFA stuff, we haven't really adopted Duo. Um, we're, we're setting people up with Authy or Microsoft Authenticator the two that we've gone with there. Personally, Authy is my choice. I avoid the Microsoft and Google Authenticator apps only because I like that Authy synchronizes all those codes uh, and everything to the cloud. Mm -hmm. I, I just feel like they do a much better version. And the Microsoft Authenticator has started to support that now. And 
the thing I think we're going to find is less people supporting Authy because I've come to find through certain vendors that it costs a pretty penny for the vendor to have to be able to support Authy. Like they actually have to pay Authy for the ability to use their app. Okay. So that was an interesting thing I learned. Um, risk assessments and penetration testing. We have our MSSP do that. Um, that was another thing that as I was building out our security service, I was like, do you really want the company providing your security services also telling you you're secure? Like it seemed like a conflict of interest, right? So I think any MSP, just for due diligence, if you're gonna offer those types of services, you know, you, you, you can still resell them, right? But don't offer them directly. Like don't have your team be the one doing the risk assessment and penetration testing. It should really be a third party, especially with certain types of penetration tests, right? Some tests, you don't want the vendor knowing much about the client because you want them to pretend like they're an outside hacker that knows very little. And, and you know, there's, there's like social engineering and things like that that they'll make use of to try to gain information that if you already knew that information, you wouldn't waste the time trying to look for it that way, right? Hmm. Very cool, man. Well, well, Brian, I am so, so thankful that you were able to pop on here with me today. Um, I learned a lot. I, I suspect a lot of people are gonna learn a lot today. And I mean, you're, you're just an MSP like us. I mean, you're not here like, you're not, you're not pitching anything. You don't have some service for MSPs or anything like that, right? No. Um, I mean, I am, uh, ever since this happened, I've, I've been going to events, talking where I can, sharing my story, being part of webinars. Um, what, I've, what I've learned is that the more I share my story and the things that I know to be true, you know, there is... I'm gonna steal this uh, from Ken from PAX-8, but there is no silver bullet out there, right? There's no perfect answer um, or solution, um, but there is everyone's experience and what they've found to work. And through that, you know, I get to know people, I network, I get to hear other people's stories, and I learn a lot quicker on how to prevent mistakes, right? It helps me get over my entrepreneurial stubbornness when I see other, hear things from other entrepreneurs about what they've done, like I'm more open-minded and willing to listen because I realize that I want to do this the easy way, not the hard way. I don't want to reinvent the wheel, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and there, because there is no silver bullet, no matter what some MSPs may think out there, no one's got the perfect solution. Right? There is no perfect solution out there, especially when it comes to security. Things are changing so much. You know, even if you could deem, yes, I've got the perfect solution today, tomorrow it's no longer the perfect solution. <laughs> hey, so um, real quick, sorry to interrupt. It's Thursday, April 16th. It's 1.30 p.m. Eastern. And I just saw... U.S. Small Business Rescue Loan Program hits $350 billion cap, government says. So the PPP 
is running out of funds. Um, wow. And I, I wonder what that means. Like, so, and, and we don't have to discuss numbers, but I know, for example, you and I both applied. Okay. I have not even yet had a chance to have the conversation with the bank or anything. Like, I think it was submitted. So I, I know that the SBA is currently unable to accept new applications for the PPP program, uh, Paycheck Protection Program, based on available appropriations funding. So does that mean mine is included or not? You know, it sounds like you already got yours. Ish. Yeah, I mean, I, the best thing I could offer is my experience and kind of what I went through. So I submitted mine the day it opened. Um, I was told I was approved about three business days later. <laughs> um, but that, all that means is that they've earmarked the money for you. Gotcha. And maybe they've, maybe they've earmarked the money even if they tell you, even if they haven't told you you're approved yet. Don't, I yeah, don't want I mean, people to worry that maybe you didn't get your money if you're not told you're approved. But I, I was told 100% that when I was approved, it, it was definitely earmarked. Right. It then, it then took another week and a half because I was so early in the process for them to just get the loan paperwork together for me to sign. Because there are certain forms that I guess hadn't even been created yet. Mm -hmm. um, and then I signed it over DocuSign and got the funds within two business days. So it's about, I'd say, a, a, almost a two-week process for someone who submitted the day of through my bank that I went through. Obviously, it's different for different banks. Well, and, and you know what's crazy is PPP allows up to $10 million per qualifying employer. And if you think they had... Uh, 350 billion with a B, but some some businesses were you know getting approved for 10 million with an M, and a billion is 100 of those businesses you know so there's there's really like if if and we know there's plenty you know like we know there's plenty of huge companies that could qualify for a 10 million dollar loan you know. Uh, there's yeah. there's a hell of a lot more tiny companies that might only get approved for a fifty thousand or two hundred thousand dollar loan, right? But there are plenty of companies that could get approved for that ten million dollar loan at one percent, nonetheless. Um, so it's uh, it's no shock to me that they ran out. I'm surprised that it finally ran out now. Not finally. I'm surprised that it took this long to run out. So, um, yeah, uh, this this probably honestly won't even get posted until like Monday, maybe Saturday. I got to take a look. So, I mean, this is going to be old news by the time it gets posted. But um, yeah, this is this is not a surprise. It sucks. Um, yeah, I got nothing. I just, yeah, I just thought I'd bring it up. It's, it's one of the reasons I applied so quickly um, is just because I didn't want to dilly-dally around, uh, especially going through a security breach two years ago and having those financial that financial squeeze. I was like, great. I don't want to go through another excuse me, financial squeeze. But I do have mixed feelings about it 
in the sense that I feel bad that it's not necessarily the people that need it the most that are getting it. It's mm -hmm. literally whoever got there first in line. You know what I mean? And I knew from the start there wasn't going to be enough money, especially like you said, with that $10 million cap. And then you hear that they got turned down trying to get the additional funding, right? It's like this partisan thing that's happening. You know, we've got two political parties fighting against each other at the, you know, at the, that's ultimately hurting the small businesses of America, you know? So, it, you know, it's like, I guess my mixed feeling is like, I feel great. I feel lucky I got it. I know it's going to help us get through this and not have another financial pinch like we had two years ago, but I feel bad for the M MSPs or even other businesses in general that needed it more than me and didn't get a chance to get it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And uh, it's, you know, it's unfortunate yeah. to say the least. So I'll just uh, open this up and I, I just have one thing to share because of this. And then I, I think now's a good time for us to wrap up and, you know, go, go wallow in our sorrows because we can't hug anybody. What about all the people that applied that haven't even heard back yet? Blah, blah. Well, and to be fair, though, those are all Republicans in that picture. Oh, I don't actually. I think I. I think I see H.W. Uh, Bush. Yeah, and then I think I saw Reagan too. So yeah, it, yeah. So I, I didn't even know who yeah. was in the picture. I just know I literally said in in the in the chat. I said. What about all the people that applied that haven't even heard back yet? And someone said, well, I've got an answer to that question for you. And then he put that up there. I'm pretty sure he just made it real quick, copy and pasted what I put in the chat to be a smart ass. So but yeah, it's, it's a popular, you know, photo that's been used. But technically oh, it's, it's Republicans a, were trying to get more money. <laughs> Not to turn this into a political thing, but yeah, we don't need to. Yeah, yesterday's uh, the 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 one that's going to get posted before this uh, will be political enough, and you're going to laugh and laugh and laugh when you watch it, or just get really angry and throw a computer across the room. I don't know which one, um, but I, I will say I really enjoyed yesterday's podcast recording. I really enjoyed today. I loved hearing your story. Brian, I do hope you'll come back sometime and, and we can talk more security. You can tell me uh, all the things I need to do to become an MSSP. Yes, I'm trolling you right now in public, in front of people. I'm sorry. Yeah. It's all love, Brian. It's all love. Yeah. All right. Hey, uh, anything else you want to share with anyone? Uh, hang in there through this time, right? I mean, um, it. I guess we didn't touch much on the COVID stuff, but um, I, I touched on a struggle I went through two years ago to do with the breach. We're all going through another struggle right now. Mm -hmm. This is a great time to build and rebuild relationships with existing clients, just being for them. It's going to pay off down the road. And um, even if you didn't get the government funding, you know, hopefully you can find a way to get through this. Um, it's, I'm, I just feel really bad for all the small businesses out there that 
are, are getting affected by this shutdown. Um, so keep your head up. Yes, I agree. Keep your head up. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Please, for the love of God, don't go out unless you need to because there are crazy people out there. Uh, I, I, I want to say this. If if you are... Um, if you're interested in, in joining a peer group for MSPs to grow their business and, and just be accountable with somebody, uh, check out Rocket MSP, the link below in the description. Uh, thanks so much, guys. Thank you, Brian. Thank you.